As I'm sure many of you know, uh, Daljit has become a conspicuous figure on the contemporary literary landscape ever since his debut collection, uh, Look, We Have Coming to Dover. And with uh, Daljit's work, you learn very quickly to read out punctuation marks. Look, We Have Coming to Dover, exclamation mark. Uh, when it won the Ford Prize for the, first best, the best first collection uh, in 2007. Since then, he's published two further volumes, also with Faber and Faber. Uh, one, the Tipu Sultan's, wonderfully titled Tipu Sultan's Incredible White Man Eating Tiger Toy Machine, uh, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Uh, that's from 2011. And the latest one, the Ramyana, a retelling from 2013, from last year. I'm pleased to say that Daljit has not only agreed uh, to read from all three volumes this evening, he's also obligingly gone along with the format that I proposed for this evening's events, which is based on the long-running uh, BBC radio program, Desert Island Discs. <laughs> the difference is that whereas the guests choose their favorite tunes in the original, I take the prerogative in this version to choose some of my favorite poems from the guests' body of work, which they then read and we discuss briefly. We're also very keen to open up the discussion at the end for questions from you, uh, so please make notes. Choosing a sample of uh, Dulgit's work from across those three collections, of course, hasn't been easy. To make it more manageable, I focused on four of his guiding preoccupations. And there's kind of four segments to this evening. We'll take it through all of these. The first is his interest in questions of cultural diversity. The second is his preoccupation with language, and in particular, with the English language and its history. The third is the canons of English literature and his awareness of and engagement with that. And the final point is his interest in translation. Yet my choices uh, mainly reflect what I've decided to opt on, and they mainly reflect what I find most compelling about the experience of reading and hearing Dulgit's work. The often unnerving sense that I am watching a skilled, daring, verbal, high-wire artist performing an exceptional balancing act. The voice Dulgit has fashioned for himself, which is as much written as spoken, as we, I think we will hear this evening, somehow manages to contain and encompass within itself high seriousness and street jokiness, the raucously bawdy and the studiously reflective, a degree of literary, perhaps even postmodern self-consciousness, and an unabashedly unironic strength of feeling. And at the same time, with all of this, a capacity to absorb a wide range of contemporary English idioms in a way that would probably upset both Eric Pickles and Nigel Farage, <laughs> and a keen interest in archiving the Englishes of the imperial past, and so much more. So I hope you'll all get a sense of these tensions this evening, and like me, enjoy the spectacle of Daljit's unique high-wire style of performance art. So, thanks, Daljit. Thank you. Uh, for wonderful. agreeing not only to come this evening, but to uh, play along with this particular format. Great. Thank you. 
Do you want to mention that Pickles quote as well? There was a quote you mentioned oh, yes. earlier. Uh, the, the, the reference to Eric that. Pickles in a, in a parliamentary um, uh, um, interview, actually, for, uh, I think it's called The House uh, magazine, and a few years ago, two years ago. Uh, you know that Eric Pickles has been on a campaign about um, immigrants needing to learn English. Um, and uh, in that statement, he, he made the particular, uh, used the particular phrase that the key thing was that people, immigrants, had to not only learn English, but they had to learn English like a native, is the phrase that he used. <laughs> that, was, that was the bit that... Uh, I love that word, native. It's yeah. great. <laughs> Um, so, as I've said, I've, I've chosen various bits uh, from uh, across all of uh, Dulgeard's three volumes, and the first one uh, that I've asked uh, if he could read has, uh, comes from his first collection, Look, uh, We Have Coming to Dover, and uh, it is called Cubber Questions, <coughs> got a wonderfully long, punctuated title, Cubber Questions, The Ontology of Representation, The Catch-22 for Black Writers, <laughs> Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Oh, sorry, shall I? You I'm go for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start really negatively because um, I hardly ever read this poem. Um, so it's good, good for me to have to yep. try and read it out. Because some, some poems I have a sense of a voice for them. And others I write them and then I have to find a way to interpret them. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give this a go. This, this is based on the NEAB GCSE anthology which um, I think you, you reminded me earlier, it was 1996. Yes, I think so it ran for about a decade. And it, it kind of cornered the market in British GCSEs. Some of you might have studied it. Um, I think it had something like about 92% at one point of all GCSE students. And they, you know, because they were given the, the anthology free to all schools to give out to students. And that was a kind of a, a new, new approach in education. So they suddenly cornered the, cornered the market. And with the poetry, they had... Um, one section where they had um, Heaney, some poems by Heaney, some poems by Blake, and some poems by Gillian Clark, and then had a section of poets from other cultures, and it's called Other Cultures. And <clears throat> I guess one of the issues for me in this, in this poem was that some of those poets from other cultures are actually born here, like Manisa Alvi, and yeah, I can't remember who the others were, but yeah, one or two were born here and actually lived here, and yet um, a Welsh poet and, a, and an Irish poet were seen as being part, you know, English, or worthy in England, studied. Um, so in this poem, my, my speaker's uh, a, pe- a father, I guess, is complaining to a teacher about this anthology. And then in the poem, the, spe- the father turns on me. He's going to turn on me. And he mentions Bullram. Bullram's another character in my, one of, another one of my poems. Um, yeah, so I'll read it. Get a sense of the madness of it. Um, Why give my boy this freebie of a silky blue GCSE anthology with his three poets from three parts of Britain, your HBC of Eni Blake Clark, showing us how to think and feel. For part two, us as a bunch of Gunga Dins, you group poems from other cultures and traditions. Other is all we are to you, to this country, other. To my son's Kabuddi posse, all your poets are other. What free-minding teacher are you to love our poem where a goat's neck is cut for blessing new house? Our bastard poet saying such houses same as Dachau. My boy, will he think every new baraton Muslim have goat blood party barbecue? <clears throat> all we do is think, all we do you think is pray for the curse of incarnations as in that scorpion stinging poem where the mother is mantred to death. 
that right to not know we have doctors and rocket rickshaw ambulance. You teachers are like this Daljit Bulram, mickeying of me as Kaba. I say for the garment of my voice, maybe Sestina, Sonnet, Tanka, Tum, with best words please. A dictation of the way I lecture Punjabi to my boy after school. So what the coconut do? He too shy to use his voice. He plot me as funny or a type. Even worse, so he is used in British anthologies. He hide in his whitey phantom English blacked to make me sound foreign. Great. Uh, thanks, Dalton. Okay. Um, one, one, th one of the things I just wanted to ask you about that mm. is that, in a sense, uh, reading that poem now, so this comes from uh, the 2007 uh, mm. anthology, although you've been publishing, you've been published since uh, the late 90s, huh? um, but in a, so you, you've, your publishing career sort of overlapped that anthology, but now, in a sense, history is caught up with you because you are now a GCSE poet. Uh, in the AQA anthology, um, in which I was hoping you weren't going to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> so you've now got uh, caught up in all of this, and uh, um, it's particularly with the poem, again from from this mm. collection called uh, "Sing Song." And again, typically with uh, Arvi, uh, with uh, Dalgit's work, you need to um, check the spelling. So it's "Sing S I N G H Song." Uh, that's the that's the poem that's been anthologised. So, can you can it's you a just cheap joke? I don't know. <laughs> my, my middle, you know, Seeks the the male Seeks how yeah. sing in, as their middle name. Yeah. Just, <laughs> could you could you just talk a little bit about that sense of having you know mm. writing a poem like this in which you you're taking on the GCSE anthologies mm. and indeed yourself and now you've become part of that big machine. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I guess when you mentioned the title of the previous one, you know, couple of questions and talking about the, the catch-22 of black writers. Mm -hmm. um, it probably ties in with sing-song in a way, because I was trying to think of um, when, uh, you know, when you see an, an Asian people from Asian background in anthologies, in British anthologies, often the poems used are ones that sound authentically Indian, um, even though the poet may have had a Western education, a Western upbringing. Um, so it's quite difficult in a sense that you want to be recognised, but as a, as a, a sort of person from a, an Asian background, but you have to, you feel like you have to put on an Asianness to to be accepted. Uh, and I, I don't say that cynically. I guess I just mean it realistically, because quite often when I've seen sort of reviews of Black Asian poets, quite often they they always been they been seen in a kind of line of, of other Black Asian poets. And I was aware of that when my first book came out. I was being seen in terms of. Um, other Caribbean poets and Indian poets who'd come to Britain since the late 50s, and some of whom I hadn't actually read at all. Mm -hmm. And I was much more familiar with, say, Shakespeare or Milton, people like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess there's that inevitability to see you in a line. So, um, so I guess in terms of sing-song, um, yeah, on the one hand, they don't have the other culture section anymore, so I was, I was pleased with that. Yeah. So I got rid of that. Um, and uh, it doesn't surprise me that sort of poem being there because it's, it's quite a jolly, perky, happy-go-lucky kind of poem. And I did, I did it in a really thick Indian voice. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess uh, hopefully the kind of reader will find this little bits of subversion. I don't know if that gets taught in schools, though. Mm -hmm. And also it's about shopkeeper. And I, um, I would see shops, Indians having shops in a very positive light because, you know, from my background, you come from an uneducated uneducated, uneducated education. Um, you're going to work in factories, so to, to 
buy a shop would be a great economic achievement. So yeah. partly yeah. this poem is a celebration of that, but I, I don't know if that come, would ever come across mm-hmm. in, um, by the school curriculum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it's, and it's also it's a kind of it's a it's a positive, uplifting in a sense, upbeat yeah. and, and, and funny funny poem. But there's there, in a sense, um, and it's, it's also it's a as in the. The title suggests it's also a love poem in many ways, a kind of a curious sort of love poem. But um, and, and one of the things is that they, when you look across your whole, the whole, uh, they've chosen that poem to kind of represent you in this for the GCSE syllabus. But there's also mm-hmm. other poems that are maybe a little bit more unsettling, dealing with similar sort of subject matter in mm-hmm. many ways and often similar sort of voice. But something like "Darling and Me" yeah. is also a love poem, but it's a, it's a slightly more menacing yeah. love poem. Uh, and, I, and and so. Th- what, what about the fact that they've, they, they've selected that aspect of... Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I guess for Sing Song, it's, um, one of the things I was trying to do was write that in first-generation and second-generation Indians mm. in dialogue. Um, so Sing Song isn't really threatening to a white Western audience because mm. it's not really um, saying anything about uh, non-Indians. So there's a kind of debate there. So it, it can be just sort of read in a humorous way about um, one generation talking back to another and, mm-hmm. and almost be... Um, interpreted in a sort of other cultures way still mm-hmm. what we're learning about Indians mm-hmm. um, and that's something I guess I was always aware of I, I, my poetry would be seen as news mm-hmm. you know as uh, given information about a particular small community mm-hmm. um, and so for me it was very important to make sure I kind of um, had as many contradictions in the work as possible right. as many different perspectives so there's sort of, I guess Sing Song's quite happy about arranged marriage as well to some mm-hmm. degree and mm-hmm. there's, poem, there's a, a poem which isn't mm-hmm. and I was, yeah, I was trying to play those sort of games those little tricks yeah. to, to unsettle um, yeah. uh, settle perception of the work but in a sense what happens with the process of anthologizing is it, it kind of res- it, it, it resettles it and so it's, it's very important for people to get back mm. to your whole collection to get the range yeah hopefully yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah I guess that wouldn't really happen in school yeah. but I mean on a positive I, I'm very happy to be in an anthology it's great yeah you know <laughs> it's just, as a poet you know you, you, when you start writing you expect to have no audience and um, even before this book came out I was still expecting to have no audience and even when it came out I was expecting no audience you know no interest so um, to be an anthology is obviously you know, a wonderful thing, so I'm actually happy about it yeah. underneath it all. And presumably it's also because, in a sense, for, for most of us now, that's the first encounter with poetry, is, is via yeah. the school syllabus, yeah, so it becomes yeah. a, vital, a vital way. Yeah. Great. Shall we maybe move on to the next one? Yeah, Which absolutely. is, uh, so we, we, the other side of it that I mentioned of, of, uh, of Dolgit's work that certainly fascinates me is that, yes, there's this in- incredible ear for contemporary English idioms in all their variety, um, which we'll hear more of later on. But there's also this fascination with archiving, in a sense, the old imperial Englishes. And uh, I've been, I, I, str- I struggled, um, and, and I think we'll have to watch the time, but, but uh, I've struggled to choose between two poems for this bit. This is the, the history of the language bit. And the one was a, a wonderful poem, which we probably won't have time for, but I really recommend you have a look at. It's just called uh, Ascent of a Victorian Woman which is about a colonial Victorian woman sort of making the journey uh, from Kolkata up to uh, Darjeeling. Um, and sort of, it's all in her idiom, and it's actually presented as a journal. It's a won- wonderful poem. But uh, for the purposes of this bit, the, 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 um, the poem that I've selected um, instead is called, uh, appropriately, for those of you who know your Larkin, uh, This Be the Pucker Verse. 
and it comes from uh, the Tipu Sultan collection. Yeah, um, and I've, you're going to mention Hobson. I've taken a few words from Hobson Jobson, the Victorian glossary. I'll mention a couple of them. I mentioned fishing fleets were the, the women that went to the various places in the empire to try and find themselves a man, a husband. Bezti Punjabi word means shame. I was partly thinking towards the end of the, the, about uh, mixing, the mixing of cultures which led, to, which led to children being born. And the Indians wouldn't want the children because they were you know, you know, seen as half-breeds or half-castes, that kind of thing. And obviously the British wouldn't want them either. So there's, there's a whole kind of history of those sort of children. And I was partly thinking about the pleasure, the leisure that goes, and this is the ultimate leisure at the end. Um, anyway, this is called, so it's called, it's be the back of verse. Ah, oh, the Raj. Our mother incarnate, Victoria Imperatrix, rules a sceptred sphere, overseeing legions of maidens' fishing fleets that break the waves to net the love of a heaven Etonian. Fates on lawns, with mansion whacking banks, or dances by moonlight at the Viceroy, the Viceroy's ball. The barrackroom bara pegs of brandy barney and pink gin, and toddy to do lally flappings on Jaldi Pankawala for six meal days, including tiffin with humps and peacock and tongue, the lock stock and bobbing palanquins for summers on Gothic verandas, where dawn Himalayas through Poobong or Uti mist for housey housey and hammocks under the Milky Way. Tally ho! In topi of khaki with swagger stick for bobbery cigars. And by Amritsar, what a 12-bore Hollis Howder from Howders, bang, bang, bagging photogenic tigers, panthers, leopards, black bucks, and bustards, and Kipling or Tatler to hand at Tollygunge. The rum-twirling, sabre-curved mustachios, lavish zananas behind bazaars with a fruity hookah, for the breathless Norch, the Norch that leads to ayers and passerby goodies, girls, snookered for sahib sport that ends in the hushed-up bestie births of half-breed half bastards growing up cursed as mad dogs and vagabonds in a jolly good Lingham land overflowing with Hobson Jobsons of Holly and opium and silk and spice and all the gems of the shafted earth. Great. So the, the, the Hobson Jobson, I'm sure many people know, but it was a, uh, a dictionary of Anglo-Indian uh, uh, words uh, put together in 1886, a Victorian dictionary, um, uh, edited, uh, put together by, uh, by Yule and Burnell. Um, and uh, I, I just, when I thought about that poem, I also thought about uh, uh, a review that uh, Rushdie wrote of um, uh, a Routledge re-edition re of that dictionary, of Hobson Jobson. They, they republished the dictionary in the mid-1980s, and, and Rushdie reviewed it. And I just thought, you know, partly in terms of what you said right at the beginning, what, what the, uh, the, the, thing that, the way that he ended that review, he said this, to spend a few days with Hobson Jobson, this is Rushdie in 1985, to spend a few days with Hobson Jobson is almost to regret the passing of the intimate connection that made this linguistic, and you used the word as well, kedgery possible, okay, is what he said. Um, but then, he said this, but then one remembers what sort of connection it was and is moved to remark 
As Rhett Butler, this is Rushdie, as, as Rhett Butler once said to Scarlett O'Hara, frankly, my dear, I don't give a small copper coin weighing one toller, eight mashas and seven surkas, being the 40th part of a rupee, or to put it more concisely, a dam. Um, you clearly, in a sense, both in this poem and in the Victorian woman poem and in many others, you actually do have this real interest in sort of, uh, or you do give a damn, in a sense, mm. about that, that, that language, recovering that language, not, and, and putting it alongside all these contemporary idioms that you're picking up in Sing Song and, uh, and uh, many of your other, your other poems. And I just, I just wondered what sense, what, what sort of triggered that, that kind of archival interest and, and, and where, where do you feel yourself going in the way that, you know, Rushdie's clearly registering a certain kind of ambivalence in 1985, but you've got also a fascination with yeah. it. Yeah, I, I, I do, I mean, I think on the, on the, on the one hand, um, there's various ways to look at this. I guess one way I might look at it is if I'm writing about Indians or my background, Punjabis, to, to a kind of British audience of, say, 99% who probably aren't Sikh Punjabi background, this is foreign material. And at that point, it becomes... All, the entry point for the outside is, you know, it's slightly exotic, isn't it? It's going to be exoticised because if you're not inside that world it has to enter an exotic space. And there's, there's, so there's that, that issue. And then where it becomes, where it, hopefully the reader becomes at one with it is when they, they kind of identify with some of the themes. They think, actually, we have the same issues as he does or that, that character does. Um, but also, hopefully, if I can charge the language up as much as possible, the, the reader's feeling there's a, a density, uh, a kind of nuance. Um, which is implicating them uh, beyond the exotic. So I want to go via the exotic. It sounds very really technical and difficult. And, um, so I want, I, want, I want the reader to feel an exotic, have an exotic engagement with the text, but also uh, a cerebral one. And, and the way I feel I want to try and heighten the cerebral experience is by you getting a really dense palette, which is historically um, travelled, where the words have historically travelled, aren't just sort of, you know, standard English. That... that um, Makes it, it, it the standard English doesn't make it interesting enough for me, um, and on the political level as well. Mm-hmm. You know, um, standard English feels too feels too clean, mm-hmm. feels too proper, feels too Orwellian. Um, for an immigrant um, to to be able to speak in standard English, like someone like myself from a working class background, that was quite an achievement to um, be able to speak standard English. So mm-hmm. I I think that's the, that's the hard thing to do. So I want to put strain into my diction as well. Well, I've sort of digressed now. <laughs> no, 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 sure. But also, in a sense, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a strain that is a, also a historical one. I mean, it's also mm. going back into to bring the historical... Uh, you know, clearly, also, a history of a non-standard English. I mean, that's, mm. that, would, that would be a, a non-standard English, which... Uh, I mean, we, we were talking yeah. earlier about... Uh, there's a wonderful bit of uh, um, uh, early playing with Hobson Jobson with uh, Edward, Lear's, uh, Edward Lear's nonsense poem called The Cummerbund. Um, which is one of the things that I've always thought about because actually in an, early, in an earlier LRB version of this poem you actually used the word kamarabant as well. Yeah. And, and Edward Lear turns these words into kind of monstrous birds and characters that uh, are, are, are sort of taunting a, a woman, a vulnerable woman with these monstrous things. Uh, so he's just, he's just playing with the sound of the words. Um, so there were, there were games going on then. Uh, this is from about the, the, the late 19th century, that poem, 1874, I think he, he did it. But so you're you're also bringing that now into play, and is that is, is it also the, in a sense you key you want that historical depth 
in terms of a non-standardness that is playing alongside the contemporary non-standardness. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. And also the, the, the points of engagement, mm. um, historical engagement between Indians and English, it's there in the very words. Mm -hmm. The moment you use a Hobson Jobson word, I, feel, I, find, I find a kind of great feeling of love in that word. Because yeah. um, the British mouthed those words, you know, were courteous enough to want to engage with those words. Mm -hmm. And I guess that sort of late Victorian period, that sort of moves away a little bit. But before that, you know, from 1600 on, with Job Charnock going to India, marrying uh, a Muslim woman, I think it was, mm -hmm. um, on, you know, had this real kind of cultural engagement between British and Indians. And those words really are kind of suitcases carrying the two worlds there. Yeah. So it's a happy experience for me. Mm -hmm. And I think, obviously, if it wasn't for the empire, my parents wouldn't have come here um, in the late 50s, and I wouldn't have been born here. Mm -hmm. So I, I necessarily view that experience as a positive one, mm -hmm. uh, the empire. Yeah. You'll see the bad, as Rushdie says, but there's also the good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Rushdie begins it with, begins that review with a, with a list of all the, the things that he also loves about it. So the British Empire, it says, he's, he's, he's constantly showing how many words come from that, have entered the language. So the British Empire, many pundits now agree, descended like a juggernaut upon the Barbicans of the East in search of loot. Every single one of the over-emphatic words being... There's, there's a, s a section in um, Tom Stoppard's Indian Inc., India Inc. Mm -hmm. the play, and they, they play a game where they have to use as many words from Hobson Jobson as possible. There's, yeah. there's a great passage if anyone um, wants to see Hobson Jobson used skillfully. He's, yeah. I think Tom Stoppard's a good one for that. Great. As well. um, shall we move on to the third? Yep, fine. Yeah. Yep. Which, is, which is actually two for the price of one, because uh, in, in this case I couldn't, I couldn't choose. Um, and I, I was glad that you mentioned that whole business of being put into a particular line and the ways in which, in some ways, your many aspects of, of, your, of your writing make it impossible to work out at least one single line. There's a whole series of possible lines that you could, uh, that you, in a sense, align yourself to. And one of them is actually just the canon of English literature. There's a, there's a tremendous uh, awareness of that kind of alignment and a, and a self-consciousness about it, which is also interrogating even what that alignment means. Um, and the two poems that I've chosen for this aspect of uh, your relationship to th those particular canons, the, the first one um, is, I should perhaps just say right at the beginning, it's a, it's a Shakespearean sonnet, so that's a bit of a giveaway. Uh, but it's called Fallacy. Um, and I should perhaps reveal that it's Fallacy with a PH. Um, and the second poem, which we'll go on straight after that, these are both come from the Tipu collection, uh, is a, a longer poem called A Black History of the English-Speaking Peoples. So we have those two. Shall I just do fallacy and then... Yes. They, bo they, both, they both reference Shakespeare for the finalists in the audience. Okay, so... The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are a few Shakespearean references, aren't there? Um, so I guess fallacy, I want to sort of role-play anti-macho behaviour for you, so that's what it's really about, I think. So, how oft do mates bang on at length about the length they're hung and grab their crotch to slash the air, then chuck an arm at will around a chum while necking Stella till they're lashed? To tell the truth, I'm really not well hung. And thus I hide from mates my prince's state. This conk is king of my poor frame. No trunks would lunchbox find to bank a lady's gaze. And yet 
I hope the guys won't feel too down when I recount my lover's hardly wimpish. Watch her stiffen over cause from louts who check her out too long, for she's that fit. In bed, most nights she'll sigh, oh love, I love the woman's way you work your subtle touch. I put everyone in an uncomfortable moment. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want me to go straight into the next one? Yeah, yeah, great. Go for it. Okay, so it's a very, very long one. You ready for this? And it just, it just drones on. I'll put it in five sections because I imagine, I guess the starting conceit for it was the Globe Theatre. Imagine, you know, when the Globe Theatre, um, from, you know, from its inception to its end, we'll have the kind of British Empire. Um, you know, from the first Globe to the second Globe, the recent one. I know there's one before that as well, that one. But the first proper one, the latest one, we had the, the rise and fall of the British Empire. And I just imagine watching a Shakespearean tragedy at, at the Globe and then sort of wander around, reflecting on myself as a black artist, I guess. Wrong way to think of it. Um, so and I'll just sort of signal the sections. I think near the end I mention, yeah, I've got loads of references, but... Um, a Colonel Lawrence, this kind of great line, he says, um, the British are under attack, and he tells his soldiers to stand and fight to the death. And I've got a quote from that. It's kind of great. It's a forgotten line now, isn't it? I think when I sort of read up about it, it was a kind of great war cry, you know, the stiff upper lip cry. That was the one, wasn't it? I think one of the main ones. Anyway, so Black History of the English-Speaking People. So one. A king's invocations at the Globe Theatre spin me from my stand to a time when boyish bravado and cannonade and plunder were enough to woo the regal seat. That the stuff of Elizabethan art and a nation of walled gardens in a local one-upmanship would tame the four-cornered world for empire's dominion seems inconceivable. Between the birth and the fire and rebirth of the globe, the visions of Albion that led to a rural Britannia of trade winds and Gulf Stream all-conquering fleets that aroused theatres for lectures and Hottentots and craniology, whilst Eden was paraded in queue. Between Mayflower and Windrush, with each necessary murder, the celebrated embeddings of imperial gusto, where jungles were surmounted so the light of learning be spread to help sobbing Sooties give up the ghost of a husband's flaming pyre. So these are the, wind, the widows who would sort of climb into the pyre after husband died. Two. So much for yesterday, but today's time-honoured televised clashes repeat the flag of a book burning and May Day's Mohican Churchill and all that shock and awe that brings me back to Mr. Wanamaker's globe, an American's thatched throwback to the king of the cannon. I watch the actor as king from the cast of masterful Robeson. The crowd too seem a hodgepodge from the pacts and sects of our ebb and flow. My forebears played their part for the empire's quid pro quo by assisting the rule and divide of their ilk. Did such relations bear me to this stage? Especially with Macaulay in mind, who claimed the passing 
of the imperial scepter would highlight the imperishable empire of our arts. So does the red of Macaulay's map run through my blood? Am I a noble scruff who hopes a proud academy might canonise his poems for their faith in canonical illusions? Is my voice phony over these oft-heard beats? Well, if my voice feels vexatious, what can I but pray that it rain bolshy through puppetry and hypocrisy full of gung-ho fury? Three. The heyday globe incited brave new verse modelled on the past, where time's frictions courted Shakespeare's corruptions for tongue's mastery of the pageant subject. Perhaps the globe should be my muse. I'm happy digging for my England's good garden to bear again. My garden's only a state of mind where it's easy aligning myself with a turncoat T.E. Lawrence and a half-naked fakir, and always the groundling. Perhaps to aid the succession of this language of the world, for the poet weeding the roots, for the debate in ourselves, now we're bound to the wheels of global power, we should tend the manorial slime, that legacy offending the outcasts who fringe our circles. And four, who believes a bleached yarn? Would we openly admit the Livingston spirit turned Kurtz? Our flag is a union of black and blue flapping in the anthems of haunted rain. Coming clean would surely give us greater distance than this king at the globe, whose head seems cluttered with golden age bump, whose suffering ends him agog at the stars. And then five, I applaud and stroll toward Westminster. Yet softly tonight, the waters of Britannia bobble with flotillas of tea and white gold cotton and sugar and all the sweetness and light bloodlettings and ultimately red-faced suez. And how swiftly the tide removes from the scene the bagpipe clamoring garrisons with the field-wide scarlet soldiery and the martyr's cry, every man die at his post, till what's ahead are the upbeat lovers who gaze from the London eye at multinationals lying along the sanitized Thames. Great, thanks, David. Um, it's, a, it's a poem that I, I think it comes across very quickly. It easily is full of references to mm. uh, the English literary tradition. Um, and it also includes, perhaps most, most strikingly, the, the line that became probably the most embarrassing line in an English poem of the 20th century. Uh, that line, the necessary murder from Auden, Spain, 1937, which Auden himself excised very quickly and changed to the fact of murder. Uh, and then Orwell, after that, absolutely castigated him in the essay Inside a Whale for this sloppy, bourgeois, middle-class uh, <coughs> failure to grasp the, the horrors of war 
by using that ethically dubious mm. phrase, necessary murder. Yeah. So th th there's, there's all of that, that history there. But um, you know, the poem itself opens up this big, big question, which is, in a sense, what, what you're addressing. Again, in this very self-conscious way about uh, your relationship to a particular tradition. And in a way, your, your, your own work is now caught up in that tradition in, 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 a, in a different sort of way because you're published by Faber. So you become a Faber poet, and, and if, you, if you thought, um, you know, what most people know about if you're a Faber poet, it's not only it's Larkin, it's Heaney, it's that whole, that whole line, but it also goes back to T.S. Eliot. And I just wondered if, uh, you, I know you've been thinking a little bit about, you know, you in the sort of the T.S. Eliot stable uh, and your sense of that, but also you've been speaking recently about your own sense of uh, Eliot's own earlier recuperate, or interest in Indian literature and poetry and philosophy, and uh, just if you could think about, talk a little bit about your your sense specifically, not not so much of all the things of Shakespeare and Auden and all the things that are going through here. Of course, Auden was another favourite poet, but yeah. but but Eliot in particular. Were they... Yeah. Um, oh, but firstly, favourite thing. I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't. Um, I find I find that a kind of ambiguous thing, being a favourite poet or being called a favourite poet. Cause, yeah. Um, I, I'm always thinking maybe I'm a novelty in, in, a, in this in my in this the stable of this publisher I'm with. Um, you, you kind of lead this very precarious, vulnerable kind of life about these things. You know, I, 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 I'm sure other poets feel like that as well. With sure. Whoever they're published by, you feel like I'm going to be dropped any book. I always go through that emotion. They're going to be dropped next book. They're going to say it's not no good. We don't want it. Come back ten years time or something like that. And I think you kind of live with that. So um, the, the favour thing feels like a cursed blessing <laughs> if I can speak nobly like that though um, but yeah I guess the, the thing with um, what started to interest me more about Eliot I guess is that his, his kind of fascination with India so uh, was, was it sort of 19 um, early 1900s he writes an essay for, in the TLS uh, a review in the TLS uh, which I think is going to come to light next year in a book and I managed to kind of get hold of it by an academic. But he reviews um, something like about eight, eight or nine Indian books, and most of them are about ag um, agriculture and economic policy written by Indians, really dry books. Um, and he starts off by saying, you know, what are the, what are the English doing? What they're writing all this exotic stuff. This is the stuff they need to be dealing with. And he's actually sort of ch chastising the empire men back then. Um, so he, he's kind of got this kind of re really realistic perspective mm. on India, but also just um, languages and cultures and tradition. He's trying to find ways, I think, to, to merge the various traditions. And for me, something like Four Quartets is as much about Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, as it is about Christianity. And when you start reading the kind of images, he's got those very general images, you know, the images of the rose, the lotus, mm -hmm. and they, they kind of, you know, they go between cultures. And I think that's why he was having these general references, and he's always trying to think out. I mean, that's obviously Cortex is much later on, but already you can see his interest. And he studied Sanskrit for a year in, in America, you know, for a whole year. He worked on it, and he knew his Indian philosophies. Um, and I, I want to be kind of influenced by that kind of air that somebody's was trying to find a way to be influenced by various traditions, trying to absorb them and bring them together. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that, that feels a very important project for me in the future. Mm -hmm. That's something I'm really working on. And I guess that was one of the main reasons why I started working on Ramayana, or Ramayana. Mm -hmm. um, well, I guess we can move on to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's great. Well, th that is, the, that is the, um, the, last, the last section that we wanted to read was from uh, Dulge's latest project, which is uh, his, it's called a retelling of, of the Ramayana. 
Um, and uh, the bit that I've chosen is uh, from uh, book three, um, and it's called, uh, the section is called Sexing Big Bro. Uh, but I should maybe just give a little bit of context. Uh, <laughs> it's the, this is the moment in which uh, Shua Punaka, um, who's the sister of Ravana, who's the bad guy, he's the, the lord of the underworld, um, she uh, comes back to his kind of quarters and uh, describes meeting Rama and Sita, who are both exiled in the forest. So she's, she's met them, and she comes back to describe them uh, to uh, her brother. Um, so this is the moment that we're going to hear. You've got the but I thought, I thought maybe just to prepare your ears for what you're about to hear, I would give you uh, this same scene, at least a few lines of this same scene, as rendered by Ralph T.H. Griffith in the 1870s. So this is the Victorian version, uh, Victorian English version of this particular scene. Uh, it's called Shupanaka's Speech, and it's from Canto uh, 34, is the way he would describe it. And just a few lines, just to give you a flavor of the Victorian English. Then forth the giant's fury broke, as Shupanaka harshly spoke. Girt by his lords, the demon king looked on her fiercely, questioning. Who is this Rama? Whence and where? His form, his might, his deeds declare. His wandering steps, what purpose led to Dundak forest, hard to tread? Tell all, my sister, and declare who maimed thee thus, and of, of form most fair. So she's been maimed as well. That's the Victorian version. This is Dolgit's version. Should we read a little bit? Just a few lines? Yeah, yeah a few lines would be great. Okay. Um, so it's going to be Ravana starting off. Um, Bastards, you all shutting up, boomed Ravana in a decahedron, out-of-tune chorus at the sight of his even more tuneless kid sister. What the bastard matter is with your face, sister? What fucker bastard... What fucker mother bastard fuck with you, sister? Shurupanaka had been repaired by the magicians, but was still hurting inside. She approached her brother, who was raving. Your nipples being cut. Your nipples cut to your nose. Who so mad would stake his honour? Oh, brother, how come you have no broadcast about newcomers to Dundaka? Why, sister, it is your domain to dominate, replied Shurupanaka. These brothers seem cosy with customs, yet are resident in our woods and eyeing for a fight. They have poked their finger in a black snake's eye. And it goes on. I, I, can I just say, I don't have too much swearing in this book. That's one of the few instances. <laughs> and you picked it deliberately. <laughs> no, no, it was, there's plenty of interest. Um, uh, just the last question I have, and then I re really do want to open it up to everybody else. Um, one of the things that's, that, that you're doing in, in, in the whole collection is, in a sense, it, it, is, a, it is a complex translation because you, you're aware of many, you're using many sources, and there's many versions, of course, of this, of this great poem, which, of course, is for some people also not simply a, a sacred poem, but it's also a poem to live by, and uh, your version is certainly not your, 
your grandmother's Ramyana in, in that sense uh, at all. And uh, the way that the blurb describes what you're doing on the, on the, on the edition that you've got, um, it says you, you're, what it does is rejuvenate the story. The plan is to rejuvenate the story for a new generation of multicultural, multi-faith readers. And I just wondered if you could, you know, given the sense that we have of that language against the Victorian English there, well, what, what the translation process actually involved, how you went about sort of well, forging that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. just the, mm. the kind of kedgeri translation yeah. that you've... You, you yeah, I, I guess yeah. My, my, the po my, my politics would be different from like Griffith's, whose version actually, I read all of it and I liked it, it's massive. Um, and I did like it, big chunks of it, it's incredible. Mm. Um, but I guess my politics, would be, I'm, I, for me, why I want to do Ramayana was, uh, I like the idea of a very, it felt to me like a very insecure, can I use that word, vulnerable or insecure text. Um, because it exists as, you know, as poetry, as prose, as puppet show, as, you know, play, mm. as music. And it exists in different versions in India. Comic books um, as well. Yeah, and comic books, sorry, yeah. yeah. And it exists in Indi loads of different versions in India, Malaysia, Thailand, Philippines, Burma, Laos. And so I, I just try to get a hold of as many different translations or bits from different um, these stories, adverts, anything I get a hold of to, to help me construct my own version. Mm -hmm. So I follow the basic storyline of, you know, um, man gets married to wife, wife gets abducted, man then goes to, husband goes to win his wife back. So I've kept to that basic storyline and I've taken bits from, um, like one, one bit, I have these kind of mad buffaloes and this kind of mad stuff with buffaloes, um, which I, I think I just had bits of plot line and then sort of made up the dialogue. But it's from a Laos version um, where they're trying to explore incest. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I took bits of that one. And I guess ultimately for me, it felt like the most fragmented Ramayana it could possibly be. I was after the most ultimately fragmented, that you couldn't say it's a North Indian or East Indian or it's a Malaysian. Uh, and so that was the aim, mm -hmm. um, to create this kind of feel of something that felt kind of global, mm -hmm. that it hit as many different countries as I possibly could, um, to give it that global feel. Because I, I guess that's the way, I live in London, and it's like, you know, it's just like a nothing of an area. It's, yeah. just, it's a global place, isn't it? So um, it's, it's London's Romeo. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. But it, it doesn't need a centre, it doesn't need a root, I guess. That's what I feel about London. There's, there's no kind of root. In, yeah. And I live in Harrow, and it's just very mixed, and nobody claims the area. and Nobody disclaims it, but nobody's got right to it anymore, I don't think. Mm. I mean, one of the things that just uh, we, we have, doesn't come across in a reading like this is how uh, a lot of what your, your work does as well is just plays with how things look on the page. Mm. And so there's a, there's a kind of a, a visual dimension to all of this as well, which, which you can maybe see a little bit better if I just hold this up, but it's all the way through this, uh, the play. Why, why was that important to you, capturing? Yeah, again, that, just that to, to capture the feeling of different genres and forms that I'm, I'm not writing a standard, I'm not writing Griffiths, I'm not yeah. writing a standard um, Paradise Lost type thing. You know, I'm not doing blank verse, I'm not going to, I want to keep, keep you kind of shifting away from being pulled away from conventional poetry feeling. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Great.